This week, scientists take a look at the bugs that call our skin home. So this is really about trying to understand if a bacteria is found on your body in one place, should we worry about that in terms of that may cause disease on another body site? And strange shapes on the surface of the moon. Now this pattern, it, it was made up of very straight sides with angular intersections. It looks very much like a giant rectangle on the near side of the moon. Plus the thirstiest country in the world and how we can quench its need for water. This is The Nature Podcast for October the 2nd, 2014. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. Our skin is crawling with bugs. From the bits behind our ears down to the spaces between our toes, bacteria, fungi and viruses have found a place to call home. Not all of these microbes are bad for our health. Sometimes they don't really do anything and sometimes they're actually good for us. But before sorting the good from the bad, you have to know who lives where. Scientists know that the body's geography affects which microbes can live in which places. But to date, no one's gathered and looked at the genomes of all the different types of microorganisms inhabiting human skin. This week, one team have managed to take a big look at the skin microbiome by sampling a group of people and sequencing the genomes from each person's nose, forehead, toenail, armpit, the list goes on. Earlier this week, I spoke to two of the authors, dermatologist Heidi Kong from the National Cancer Institute and genomics expert Julie Segray from the National Human Genome Research Institute. Here's Julie telling me why they set out to do the study. So in order to understand why sometimes people carry a bacteria that could cause a disease without resulting in disease, we need to understand much more about what are the other members of the bacterial and fungal community. This is the question that really led us to investigate what is the full microbial community. And by microbial community, I mean the bacteria, the fungi, the viruses. You and others have done some of this work before, looking at different populations of skin bugs. What's new here? The previous work had always looked at each of these communities independently. Dr. Kong and I have done a study where we've looked at the bacterial populations of the skin, the fungal communities of the skin. This paper brings all of those communities together, bacteria, fungi, viruses, and allows us to really understand what is shaping the larger community of the million bacteria and the fungi that, that reside per square centimeter on human skin. So how did you go about this? Who did you sample? Heidi Kong, let's come to you. So we sampled healthy volunteers... 15 individuals, and we sampled multiple skin sites. For example, we sampled the forehead, we sampled, um, and so there are certain diseases such as acne that can be on the forehead. We sampled behind the ear and in the crease of the arm, Um, and those are sites that can be affected in a disease such as eczema or atopic dermatitis. And what did you notice about how these groups of bacteria, how these communities differed across these individuals? There are some common features to all of the healthy volunteers. We saw much greater difference between different body sites. For example, there are viruses, human viruses that live on the skin. 
and we saw that viruses were more prevalent either inside the nose or on the side of the nose crease. And that was true of all the healthy volunteers and was different than any other body site. I mean, one of the things that we did find was that there are certain regions, certain skin characteristics that we can use to group the certain types of bacterial, fungi, and viral communities. For example, dry skin sites, these are considered broad, flat surfaces of skin. The moist skin sites, such as the creases and folds of the skin surface, like the bend of your arm or behind your knee. And then the oily sites, again, had a different set of bacterial, fungi, fungal, and viral communities, as well as we sampled the toenail, and the toenail is distinct from those other three skin sites. So the general pattern that emerged was that the geography of the skin affects different bugs in different ways. Um, For example, the strains of bacteria that cause acne are more specific to the person than they are to the body site, whereas strains of Staphylococcus epidermis are more specific to the part of the body than they are to the person. Do these kind of results then help diagnose disease or treat skin infections? So this is really about, from a clinical perspective, trying to understand If a bacteria is found on your body in one place, should we worry about that in terms of that may cause disease on another body site? And when we think about trying to eradicate a bacteria, we always have to worry about, could this person reseed themselves? Could they become colonized with this bacteria again? So it's really important for us to know where this bacteria is being carried and what kinds of communities keep that bacteria from causing a disease. But we're just at the beginning stages now of sort of writing the rules. Regarding antibiotic resistant bacteria, what did you see in terms of these resistant bugs? We do see here that there are individuals who have more antibiotic resistance potential. We also see that there are body sites that carry more resistance to certain classes of antibiotics. And, and that's the, the work ahead for us, is to understand both the individuality and the biogeography of antibiotic-resistant bacterial carriage. That was Julie Segray and Heidi Kong. Still to come in the research highlights, Polynesian sailing and a new way to catch African plant thieves. But before that, look up at the moon at night and you'll notice dark spots on its surface. Early astronomers mistook these spots for oceans, but they're actually large plains of basaltic rock. Most of the spots, known as maria, reside in the Oceanus Procolarum, a region that lies low and has a thin crust. This huge basin has long intrigued planetary scientists because they thought it was caused by a massive asteroid impact early in the Moon's life. But looks can be deceiving. Reporting in Nature, a team used two NASA satellites orbiting the Moon to study its gravitational field. Studying this field can hint at the structures underneath the Moon's surface. Rather than a circular rim, which an impact would leave behind, they found the sharp lines of a rectangle. The team think they've stumbled upon the remnants of a magma plumbing system. To find out what's behind the crazy shapes, Lizzie Gibney called author Jeff Andrews Hanna. Jeff began by explaining the impact idea. A lot of early studies interpreted this region as a possible ancient impact basin, uh, which would make it essentially the second largest impact basin in the solar system, about 3,200 kilometers across. But this has been a a somewhat controversial hypothesis. 
there really wasn't a, the very strong, compelling evidence to support it. And this is one of the things that we were testing with our work. And so what did you find in this region then that, that we thought was a big impact crater? Well, we saw some things we expected and we saw some things that we didn't expect. We've known for a long time that the lunar gravity field is dominated by the effects of known impact basins. So impact basins on the near side of the moon have very clear circular gravity anomalies. But at the same time, we saw one thing that was completely unexpected. We saw a giant rectangular pattern of gravity anomalies on the near side of the moon, roughly 2,600 kilometers across, centered on this Procolarum region. Now this pattern, it, it was made up of very straight sides with angular intersections. It looks very much like a giant rectangle on the near side of the moon, and it seems to be incompatible with the impact hypothesis. And what do you mean by gravity anomalies? What are these um, the differences that we can see? Well, so the sides of this rectangle are basically long, narrow, straight regions where the gravitational acceleration is a little bit higher than the surroundings. So there's a slightly stronger pull of gravity there. And what we're able to do is take that gravity field and analyze it to figure out what is going on beneath the surface. And our interpretation in these regions is that what we have are something, is something like a buried valley. So if you had a long, narrow depression in the lunar crust that got filled in with the mare basalt, the lava flows that cover much of the lunar near side, that would give us a positive gravity anomaly like this. The question then is how do you form these valleys to begin with? And we interpret these as being rift valleys, like the East African Rift Valley in Ethiopia, where the crust of the moon has been stretching and be become extended, and that forms this valley, which then gets filled in with lava flows. And so why would, um, why would these rift valleys, if they're the kind of plumbing in the, in the lava system, why would they create this rectangular shape? Well, that's a really good question and something that we've been struggling to try to understand. One thing we know about this area is that it was an area of high heat flow because of these high concentrations of radioactive elements. So early in the evolution of the moon, this area would have been hotter than its surroundings and it would have cooled off with time. As it cooled, it would have contracted and as it contracts, it would basically pull away from its surroundings. And that could give us the extension we need around the Procolarum region in order to form these sorts of rift valleys. The question though then becomes, why do you form a rectangular shape? Well, we can look at smaller scales in nature to see sort of simpler analogs. And we see this at a number of scales. Uh, one example would be a cooling lava flow. Whereas the lava flow cools and contracts, you form fracture patterns. And those fractures intersect at 120 degree angles. Well, when you have fractures intersecting at 120 degree angles, the shape that you make is a hexagon. In this case, though, on the moon, we're looking at such a large scale that you have to worry about the effect of the surface curvature of the moon. And in this case, it turns out that a structure of this size with 120 degree angles is going to have four sides instead of six. Or put, to put that another way, a square on the surface of a, of a sphere at the size of the Procolarum region of the moon is going to have 120 degree corner angles instead of 90 degrees. And so might there be other areas on other planets that we, we thought are impact craters but could turn out to be um, these structures caused by volcanic um, activity instead? That's certainly a possibility and that's something we're thinking about more carefully now. One possible example, and this is very speculative at this point, is in the northern region of the planet Mercury. We see a large depression with a lot of volcanic activity in the past and it's possible that this northern volcanic region of Mercury could have had a similar history to the Procolarum region on the moon. 
we try and use craters a lot of the time on the moon to infer things about, say, the Earth's bombardment history. And now that we've got this one, at least one case of mistaken identity, do you think we're going to have to um, recalibrate everything? Is this going to change our ideas about the Earth's bombardment? Well, it won't change our ideas about the Earth's bombardment per se. But this question of giant impact basins has really been at the forefront of planetary science for a while. We recognize small impact basins and impact craters very easily, but it's been thought that giant impacts may have had a significant effect on the planets. That was Jeff Andrews Hanna talking to Lizzie Gibney. Coming up, the countries whose crops are drinking them dry. But first, it's time for the best science from outside nature this week. It's the research highlights with Charlotte Stoddart. Polynesians living a thousand years ago used an unusual shift in wind to sail down towards the islands they were to colonise. Polynesians are thought to have sailed upwind across the South Pacific to colonise New Zealand and Easter Island. Now researchers in Australia have reconstructed Pacific sea level pressure and wind patterns from the time. The changes in climate also altered wind patterns, which allowed the Polynesians to sail easily to their destinations. Read more in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Chemistry could help to catch African plant thieves. South Africa's cycad plants look like a cross between a palm and a pineapple tree and are one of the most endangered plants in the world. They're sold on the black market as garden ornaments, but so far attempts to protect them from poachers have failed. Now researchers in South Africa have developed a method that uses the plant's chemical fingerprint, known as their isotope signature, to detect whether they've been moved. Plants take elements from their environment, so the signatures of plants vary depending on where they grow. The team are now testing suspect plants from police raids to see whether their isotopes match up with their owner's story. The results are due to be published in the November issue of the Journal of Forensic Sciences. Can you guess which country is the thirstiest in the world? According to the World Bank, the top user of water per person is Turkmenistan in Central Asia. In fact, many former Soviet countries in the region are high on the list, including Uzbekistan, Tajikistan and Kazakhstan. It's not just people consuming the water, it's mainly thirsty crops like cotton and wheat. To find out why the stands are such great water guzzlers compared to other countries, Charlotte Stoddart called Ollie Varis, an expert in water resources management at Aalto University in Finland. Ollie's written a comment piece on water use for this week's Nature. So why is Turkmenistan top of the list? There are a couple of reasons. One is the climate. It's really a dry climate area and and the evaporation of water is huge. And uh, in the Soviet times, particularly starting from the 1960s, it was developed as an agricultural area for purposes of Soviet Union. They constructed huge irrigation networks and, and uh, thousands of kilometers long, long uh, channels. Now the technology has outdated, and in the beginning it was also not so quite fancy. So, so the channels are leaking and uh, water use is, is not really efficient. Can you give us um, an impression of just how much water is being used? Compared to uh, many Arab countries which have r- relatively similar uh, 
economic structure and have lots of similarities in, in climate. Turkmenistan is using something like fivefold water. Per Five capita. times as much water per person as yeah. Arab countries. Yeah, very, very rough, roughly at that level, but, but it's really, really much more than, than countries like Syria or Egypt or Tunisia are using. And what kind of impact is this having then on the environment? Yeah, the environment is, of course, uh, impacted in many ways. Due to lots of leakage of water and, and overuse of water in, in agricultural areas, there's, uh, there's lots of accumulation of salt to the land. So the soil, soil gets deteriorated and, and, in, and the agricultural production and ecosystems are suffering a lot. And another big, big thing is that uh, there's not so much water uh, running downstream. And the biggest uh, problem is the drying out of the Aral Sea. The Aral Sea has lost 90% of its uh, surface area in the past 50 years. Gosh, and you mention in your comment piece that the Aral Sea was once the fourth largest lake in the world, but now it's almost vanished. And is that having a significant effect on wildlife and climate even in the region? Yeah, it's having a huge uh, effect on wildlife and, and other parts of the ecosystems. There used to be lots of uh, fisheries and hunting and, and it used to be a very vivid area and it's been really inhabited over thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So it's one of the cradles of, of human civilization and now in the past 50 years it has, it has completely collapsed in terms of uh, ecology and also the climate is impacted particularly the extreme weather events like very high high temperatures in summertime and a very cold temperatures in wintertime have been increased, increased dramatically because of, of less water to buffer the climate And of course, those climate effects will be felt by other countries in the region and rivers, of course, cross borders. So is this having an effect not just on Turkmenistan, but on the whole region? Yes, exactly. It's it's having a huge effect on on a couple of countries, uh, most remarkably for Uzbekistan and uh, Kazakhstan. What can be done then to reduce the per capita water consumption in countries like Turkmenistan? Well, there are lots of lots of ways. I think the most uh, kind of traditional approach is to increase the efficiency of water use at the farm level and and uh, in the farming system infrastructure level. So improve the infrastructure and improve farming practices and and optimize water use in other ways. But that doesn't maybe lead too far. I think there should be ways out through through the change of the economic structure so that there should be other sources of income to the population than just just farming. In my article, I take examples from India and China and many other countries which have had similar problems earlier, but, but are getting uh, away from those problems because they are investing in, in service industries, they are investing in uh, people's educations, they, they are investing in uh, high-tech industries and these kind of things which are not stressing the environment so much but which are harnessing the human capital. Do leaders in these countries recognise the problem and is there political will to solve it? 
Yes, in some countries there there is political will and, and the leaders are recognizing. I think the most positive example is Kazakhstan. But uh, some of the other countries, I think most remarkably Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, also Tajikistan, they are not really, I think, uh, paying attention to, to these tensions. And, and it's a little bit worrying because we have lots of... Uh, example of, of little bit similar situations from Arab countries recently and also from uh, Afghanistan. So looking to the Middle East or to Afghanistan, I mean, what are the risks of not dealing with this problem? People in, the, in that part of the world, also including the former Soviet Union, they, they usually have a kind of mindset of, of solving problems more easily with arms than we Europeans have. And, and uh, there's a growing threat of, of this part of the world getting unstable politically and, and then more violent. That was Ollie Varis talking to Charlotte Stoddart. News time now, and joining me in the studio is reporter Dan Cressy. Now, to say your story is about pirates is a bit misleading, but it is about stopping people from stealing things. This is to do with the Nagoya Protocol. What did that protocol aim to achieve? Yeah, the intention was that you would that this is to stop people going to developing countries, plundering all of their resources, plants and animals, making lovely products out of that and selling them for a fortune without any of the benefits going back to the country where the samples were originally taken from. So that's the completely laudable aim of the protocol, which nearly all scientists are completely in agreement with. But as ever, when you make these huge international conventions, quite often there are unintended consequences. We'll get to those um, possible unintended consequences in a minute. But um, So the, the peg for this basically is that later this month, the protocol moves into action. Yeah, on, on the 12th of October, the protocol will finally come into effect. It was originally uh, conceived about four years ago. A whole bunch of different nations have signed up. There are some refuseniks as well, which makes things even more complicated and will make lots and lots of work for the lawyers. But from this month... If you work in a huge number of countries or want to work in a bunch of these countries, you will have to abide by this protocol. Notable exceptions, China and the, the US. United States. Initially, as set out, it does seem, as you said, like a laudable aim. So, I mean, the purpose of this and what's going into action right now, this month, is basically to stop people sort of plundering genetic or other biological information, right, from, from a source within a country and taking it back. That's right. The kind of key point of the Nagoya Protocol is what they call access and benefit sharing, or because we love a three-letter acronym, ABS. And this is the idea that if you go and take a frog or a plant or anything from another country, that country has a right to say whether it wants some benefits if you then develop a multi-million pound selling pharmaceutical or something like that. There have been these hugely controversial cases in the past where scientists, often from Western nations, have gone to developing nations and have taken plants or products that native people have used as medicines or whatever, and they have tried to commercialise products from those without any benefits returning. And that's the kind of extreme end of this type of research, which is often dubbed biopiracy. And that's acknowledged to have been a great big problem. And what 
could be then, as you mentioned earlier, the unintended sort of consequences of, of constraining this, these kinds of relationships? Yeah, one of the big fears of scientists is that this is going to be a huge additional layer of red tape on their work. They already have to get a whole load of permits and now there's going to be a whole load more things that they have to comply with, a whole load of extra boxes to tick before you can get down to doing the actual science that you really want to do. And in some cases, the consequences of not ticking those boxes could be pretty severe. In the UK, for instance, is talking about jail time. They're talking about inspectors having the right to come round and say, let me into your lab, let me see your notes. And, and people are worried, you know, possibly quite rightly, that in the case of, for example, a sequence of a disease, um, you know, the Ebola outbreak continues to spread in West Africa. Could, could this kind of protocol constrain what, what researchers outside of the area can do with those, those sequences, that information? Yeah, some of the most extreme concerns um, which have been voiced like people like the Wellcome Trust are that the protocol could end up from the way it's been implemented hindering the fight against the global pathogens and disease spread. If it's really important when you're fighting a disease to know what's where and to be able to move samples to labs so you can analyse them quickly and work out what's happening with an outbreak. And if there's an additional barrier to that, then that's a problem and that could potentially create problems. On the industry side of things, they're saying, you're giving us all these extra hoops to jump through and we're going to have to do all this benefit sharing stuff. So maybe it's less attractive for us to work on some of these things. But are these just teething problems of a new protocol just launching or are they deeper issues that might mean it, it you know, runs into problems? At the moment, it's really hard to say because the protocol hasn't come into force yet. And a lot of what's actually going to happen isn't clear at all. For instance, some people are still not clear whether their use of a genetic sequence, it counts as use under the Nagoya protocol. So say if you're comparing to, if you sequence two things and compare the sequences, do you also have to have one of these access and benefit sharing agreements in place? There's a lot of wrinkles which will need to be sorted out. Thanks, Dan. As always, head to nature.com slash news for more on that story and plenty more. That's it for this week and that's also it for me. This week is my last at Nature and sadly that means it's also my last Nature podcast. Fear not though because Kerry and co will be back next week with a trip to Springfield to take a look at maths in The Simpsons. I'm Theo Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. And from me, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>